0: Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20, where today we return to the book that we began all the way back in January of 2019. We've taken uh, several breaks along the way, most recently in our study through uh, Galatians, but today we return to begin the, the stretch run. And get this, it took us... 34 weeks to get from chapter 1 to chapter 20 verse 17 so 34 weeks to get halfway through the book but now the next 20 chapters the the surge to the end just seven weeks without even being able to see some of your faces this morning I know some of you are are breathing a a deep sigh of relief but here's what we're going to do let's pray together and then let's get started O Lord, this morning we ask for you to bless the preaching of your word. Let it bring life to those who are dead in their sin, faithful obedience to be instilled and encouraged in the life of your children and an overall sense of awe, wonder, and reverence as we reflect upon how you revealed yourself and your will through your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in resuming our, our journey through the book of Exodus, we, we pick back up with the Israelites at the, the base of Mount Sinai. They've already been delivered from Egypt. They've crossed over the Red Sea. The Lord has faithfully provided them with bread and with water and their very first victory in, in battle. And they've just now finished receiving the Ten Commandments. And that's where we pick up today, beginning in verse 18 While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, I can't really ask for a show of hands here. Well, I guess I could, but it wouldn't do us much good for for obvious reasons. So I I don't know about you, but I've always enjoyed a good thunderstorm. That is, I've enjoyed a good thunderstorm from a distance. And growing up in the South, I've, I've experienced my fair share of big storms. Sometimes we'd even sit out in the garage with the door kind of up on the garage as the storm came through, just watching and, and listening. That is until the lightning got t- too close and it was like, Nope. <laughs> nope, I'm I'm heading inside now. I'm getting away from this and and you knew, having grown up in the South, you knew when the tornado sirens went off it was it was time to take cover. It was time to take this thing seriously. You can You can behold an awe-inspiring, the awe-inspiring beauty and power of a storm. It's there. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. But it only takes one experience with a powerful tornado to to learn that it also must be feared. So I I love to watch a, a lightning storm raging way out at sea or in the distance. I have zero desire to sail out into it. I stand in awe of the destructive force that a tornado can, can bring. But I am I'm going to take cover when the sirens go off. Why? Because a storm demands respect. Well, the same is true with God. And that's what we have here at Mount Sinai. As what the people are experiencing and witnessing are the visible manifestations of the invisible God. The the whole scene starting back in chapter 19 and continuing through the giving of the Ten Commandments and into our text today, it's just one unfolding scene that's taking place. But there's a noticeable difference in the people's response before the giving of the Ten Commandments and after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And that's what I want us to look at today. Noticing... Five things from these four verses, starting with number one. Notice how the people respond. First, how they respond in chapter 19, and then how they respond in chapter 20. So how they respond before the giving of the Ten Commandments, and then how they respond after the giving of the Ten Commandments. So in chapter 19, verse 12, the Lord telling Moses, And you shall set limits for the people all all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then the warnings just continue throughout the chapter. It's like this close, but no closer. Don't come near the mountain. Verse 21, the Lord again tells Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And so why the warning here? Why the seriousness being put forth of boundaries and barriers? Because they're looking in awe at, at what's taking place before them and and they're pressing in towards the mountain. They're wanting to come close to the mountain. They're they're approaching like a moth to a flame or a mosquito to that little zapper thing, you know, it has the light on it, and the mosquito comes forth and like, wow, zap, and what happens to the mosquito? It's dead, right? See here, the people are like, kind of like the mosquito. They're wanting to come to the mountain. They're like, wow, they can't believe what's before them. They want to come close to, to the Lord. But here's the problem. They're experiencing all without reverence and respect. They don't understand that they can't approach God on their terms. They can't approach God on their terms, that is, with, without dying. Thus the warning which itself is an act of, of love from, from God. God, God didn't, have to, he didn't have to warn them, but he does. Like, he couldn't just let them learn the hard way. Like, we're going to learn by experience here. Like, the first few people who make it to the mountain, and they touch it, and they die. Hey, man, lesson learned, right? But he doesn't do that, does he? He gives them the warning ahead of time. But after he gives them the law, after he gives them the, the 10 commandments of you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself any idols, you, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. and The list goes on of the commandments. But after he gives the, the law, what's the people's response? Chapter 20, verse 18. It tells us they were afraid. They trembled. They stood far off. No longer are they approaching and pressing into the mountain. the, The boundaries that they had to set up, they're no longer necessary. And the question here is why? Why are they trembling and standing far off away from the mountain? And the answer is because drawing near to God is absolutely terrifying to sinners. God is an awesome and all-powerful God whose holiness cannot be approached in the slightest bit with sin. Our sin does not allow us to approach the holy God. And the people here, they get the message. They heard the law from the voice of God and immediately knew that they they were guilty of breaking the law. They were sinners in the presence of the holy God. And they rightly feared the terrifying judgment that they deserve. True then, true today. Romans 1, 18, telling us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Which is why if we attempt to approach God on our terms, we will die. And I believe this is one of the most neglected teachings in the church today. No boundaries, no fear, no trembling before God. There's a call to believe in Jesus and to be saved and we want to issue that call. But there's little to no explanation of what it means that we're saved from. Little to no focus on on repentance or the holiness of God. But friends, let us see that from this text, God must not be approached on our terms. He is to be feared and he is to be respected. That's verse 18. But now number two, notice what the people request. Coming to Moses here in verse 19 and saying, you speak to us and we will listen, but not, do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, at first glance, this appears to be a very audacious request, doesn't it? To say, Moses, we want you to speak to us, but not God. And while that's what they're saying, that's not exactly what they what they mean. See, they're not saying that they want to hear from Moses instead of God. They want to hear from God. That's why they, they're, they're pressing into the mountain, because they, they wanted to be near God. But now having heard the law, they're They're aware of their sin. They're more aware of their sin than they ever have been, and they're afraid to approach him. They're fearful of even the sound of his voice. They're trembling at the sound of his voice, which brings them to do what? They ask Moses to be their mediator. They're asking Moses to speak to them on behalf of of God, which is actually a sign of of spiritual maturity on on their part, part, isn't it? because like up until this point they've had their fair number or fair share of complaints against moses and against god even wondering if he had brought them out there into the wilderness to die but what do we realize or what do they realize here at mount sinai they realize their need for a mediator they realize that they cannot approach god on their terms and live they cannot approach god with their sin and live So what do they say? They say, Moses, you speak to us. And the you speak to us is followed by what? And we will listen. You speak to us on behalf of God, and we will listen. We will obey. Just as they said in chapter 19, verse 8. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. See, there is a desire here from the people to obey, but at the same time, a recognition of their inability to obey fully. Thus, the right reluctance to approach the living God. Thus, the rest of verse 19 saying, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. But oh, how different this view of God is from what we see today. Yes, today, we are witnessing a pervasive low view of God that is permeating throughout our our culture and even within the church. Why? Because we, and by we, I mean that the church culture at large have created an understanding of God that focuses almost exclusively on one attribute of God. You can guess which attribute that is. It's his love. Thankful for his love. But the view that is being taught or how his love is being taught and communicated doesn't focus on his love rightly or at least not completely. See, the thought is if God is love, then he can never judge or or punish or send anyone except maybe the really, really, really bad person to hell. Thus, we've created a God who loves us on our terms and not his We've created a God without the thunder and without the lightning and without the fire. There's no trembling before this God. There's no standing off from this God in in fear. But if we believe in a God who doesn't reveal himself in thunder and lightning and fire, then we do not believe in the God of the Bible. Oh, church, there is much to learn from the Israelites' experience here at Mount Sinai. So much to learn about what it means to approach the the living God. And I believe lesson number one is that salvation cannot exist without knowing that we deserve to be judged. We are dangling over the fire, deserving of the eternal wrath and punishment of God for our sin. That's what the Israelites are keenly aware of in this moment. They deserve God's judgment. They deserve to die. So what do they do in that moment with this realization? They stand off. They stand far off and they call out for a mediator. You speak to us. So friend, if your understanding of God doesn't bring about a sense of fear, and a desperate longing for a mediator, you do not yet know the living God. But in the midst of their fear, notice number three, notice the words of comfort. As Moses speaking on behalf of God in verse 20 says, do not fear. These words being like those uh, a parent delivers to a, a frightened child, don't be afraid. It's okay. Child has just begun to chase after a ball that's made its way into the road. And in that road is oncoming traffic. And what does the, the parent do with a strong parental warning? Stop. Stop. Hopefully causing the child to stop. And in this moment of stopping to also tremble. But what do you do, do, you do as a parent in that moment with that trembling child? You embrace him or her. You comfort him. Don't be afraid. It's okay. But I I want you to listen. This is why you have to listen to mom. This is why you have to listen to dad. We don't want anything bad to happen to you. Same here as Moses continues in verse 20. For God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you. So now let's slow down and look a little closer here. He starts by saying, do not fear. And it follows by saying that the fear of him may be before you. Now, anyone else find this confusing here? Because it confused me at first in looking at it. Like, how can, how can you say don't fear in one line and then right after that, turn around and say, hey, this is happening, so you will fear. Doesn't seem to make sense, but It's not confusing when we begin to slow down and really take in what Moses is saying here. See, the the call of do not fear is like I've already illustrated. It's like a parent comforting a, a frightened child after warning them not to run into oncoming traffic. This is why you need to listen. Don't listen and something bad is going to happen. So then we read, when we read that the fear of him may be before you, it's in reference, in reference to our illustration. It would be the healthy fear of a child for a loving parent. This isn't the, the fright-filled fear at the hand of an abuser. This isn't fright at all, but healthy fear, respectful fear. See, believers don't stand frightened before God. Let me say that again. Believers don't stand frightened before God but possess a healthy fear and respect as we listen to his voice, as we listen to his word, which is pointing us to something else that we need to notice. Number four, notice the overall focus on the necessity of obedience. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And so how is it that one is kept from from sinning? The text tells us it's through obedience, by obeying the law of God, which scripture tells us that we have all failed to do. Every one of us has has failed to do. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But let's just be honest here. We hate the word obey. We have a distaste for the word obey. We, We hate the very notion of the word obey. We want to be obeyed, but we don't want to obey. And all we have to do is look at our current situation, our current cultural climate as a living example of how much people hate being told what to do. It's a part of our sinful nature to want to rebel against obedience. We could have any, every intention of, of doing something, but then someone else comes along and tells us that we have to do it, and we now we no longer want to do it. Like, for example, like I'm about to go and you know, empty the dishwasher. I have every intention. But, you know, I'm going to do something nice for Leslie. I'm just going to go uh, empty the dishwasher. Not even something nice for Leslie, just something that you do as a part of the person living in the home, like helping out in that way. But then Leslie hollers out, hey, in a very nice way, Hey, Jamie, would you mind be able to just clean out the, the, the dishwasher, kind of unload the dishwasher and put the dishes away? Man, immediately, my sinful heart is like, I don't want to do this anymore. Just because she told me to do it or asked me to do it, now I, I don't want to do it anymore. That's the little sinful rebel that comes out in all of us. It goes all the way back to Genesis in, in the garden. We want to be our own lawmakers. We, we don't want someone else telling us what to do. We don't want any hint of someone telling us what to do. That's why the verse is calling wives to submit to their husbands or citizens to obey their government leaders or to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and so on. We see so much pushback. It doesn't just apply to our distaste for, for government oversight. It applies to our sinful rebellion against our creator. We have a problem with obedience because we want things on our terms. Thus the purpose of the lightning and the thunder and the smoke. Most importantly, the word of God is that you may not sin and that you may not sin so that you may not die because that's what the loving loving father does. He tells his children what he expects this is my expectation and he instructs them on of those expectations as a means of their own protection he trains them in how they are to live that's what we see expressed in, in the middle portion of verse 20 with Moses telling the people for God has come to test you and this isn't the, the first test that they've experienced on their journey is it now, remember when they came to Marah the, the, the bitter water that they received at, at Mar, Mar, Mara, right? What happened then? They complained because the water was bitter. The Lord had just delivered them from Egypt, had just crossed the Red Sea three days prior. And they still found themselves complaining and doubting the provision of God. But what did God teach them in, in that moment? He taught them that he would provide, that he's the one who can turn the bitter water sweet. Or think about right after that with the manna and the bread from from heaven. The Lord providing just enough for one day. Instructs them that they can only go out and gather enough for one day. It specifically says he's doing this to test the people. Why? Again, he's teaching them to trust him for their provision. Now they come here to Mount Sinai. And he's teaching them something else. He's teaching them to obey. He's saying, this is what holiness looks like. This is what I expect from my children. Here's what is expected in order to enter into my presence. And in just hearing the Ten Commandments from his voice, they now recognize how unholy they really are. Thus, the reason they cry out for a mediator. They cannot, in their very best efforts, begin to keep God's law which means they cannot draw near to God. And that's the dilemma. They know they have no ability in their own power to draw near to the presence of God and live. But they want to. They want to be in the presence of God. They desire to be. It's why they pressed up against the mountain in in chapter 19. And why God had to set boundaries of this far and no further. And it's why they're they're crying out for Moses to be their mediator. They want to be in the presence of God, but they realize they can't without a mediator. So now, number five, notice how Moses is able to draw near to God. Verse 21, the people stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Again, what a sight this must have have been. People standing away from the mountain and trembling in in fear. And Moses, I believe, trembling himself, drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The question here is how? How is this even possible? How does he, a sinner, approach God, draw near to God and not die? Well, it's because his mediation for the people, was grounded in the mediation of a greater mediator. And here's what I mean by that. While he approached God as a mediator on behalf of the people, he did so with a mediator of his own. Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel 40 years later when they're on the verge of entering into the promised land. So after they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, the new generation has been risen up. And he's giving a series of sermons, preparing this new generation of Israelites to enter into the promised land. He's teaching them how they are to, to live. And in his sermon, he he references back to the events of Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and their cry for a mediator. But notice what he says in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So not, not Moses, but like Moses. Raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, that is from your fellow Israelites, It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, on the day of assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore. So here Moses refers back to the events of Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, And the thunder and the lightning when the people said to him, you speak to us. The people pleading here for for a mediator. And yes, Moses served as a partial answer to their prayer. But I say partial because Moses himself says here in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 that someone greater than he will come. A future prophet, a future mediator from one of their tribes who they shall listen to. And church, who is this mediator? It's Jesus. Jesus is this mediator. Moses, probably even unbeknownst to him, is pointing us to Jesus. The mediation of Jesus stretching forward to today and all the way back to the beginning. The blood of Jesus covering the sins of God's people by faith, both past, present, and present future. So here's the picture. At Mount Sinai, God descended from heaven, and he settled on top of the mountain to meet with the people. And what did Moses do? He ascended up the mountain to meet with God. So God comes down, descends upon the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. So essentially, he's, he's kind of meeting God halfway there, In the midst of the thunder, in the midst of the lightning, in the midst of the smoke. But now, let's ask this. What did Jesus do? He didn't descend on a mountain and have us meet him halfway, did he? No. No, he, he descended all the way to earth. And when he did, the invisible God became visible. And the thunder of God was replaced with the cry of a newborn baby. Emmanuel, God, with us. Why? Because God wants his people to enter into his presence. And the only way that's possible is for us to be without sin. And we cannot make that happen. In our best of efforts, we cannot make that happen. Moses could not make that happen. But Jesus could, and Jesus did giving his life to wipe away the sin of everyone who believes. So friend, if you're sitting there this morning frightened by your sin in relation to the holy God, repent of your sin and trust in Jesus as your only hope in life and in death and he will be your mediator. He will be your intercessor before God because what did Jesus do after living and dying and rising from the grave? He ascended into the clouds, just as Moses ascended into the cloud. But remember, when Moses went into the thick cloud, he he couldn't see the face of God, could he? No, if he did, he would have died. Not so with Jesus. As he ascended into the clouds to the very throne of God, where he sits at this very moment making intercession for, for everyone who believes now, what does that mean that he's making intercession for us? It, it means that while the atonement accomplished our salvation, like the life, death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus accomplished our salvation, his continued intercession is the moment by moment application of this atoning work. As Dan Ortland puts it in his incredible little book, Gentle and Lowly, the, the intercession of Christ is his heart connecting our heart to the Father's heart. This is the reason that we know with confidence that he will save us from the fire, that he will save us from the judgment that we deserve. Because although we continue to fail in our obedience, and man, we fail big time sometimes, right? Jesus continues to intercede on our behalf to the Father. Oh, what grace and the spirit continues to form us into the image of the son oh what grace see church God doesn't forgive us our our sin through Jesus's work on the cross and then just say hey I hope you make the rest of the way on your own no he ensures that we will persevere in faith to the to the very end by giving us a mediator who also intercedes for us And in doing so, he ensures we who are entrusting Jesus as our only hope in life and in death that we, 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 we will see God face to face and we will not die. Get that! We will see God face to face and we will not die. We will see God and we will not be frightened. We will rejoice with all the redeemed and worship him who is worthy of all worship. But now, just a few, few things before we close. Starting with this. Christ does not mediate and God does not forgive so that we can be ambivalent towards obedience. The voice that spoke from the mountain continues to speak to us today through his word. So we don't have the thunder and the lightning and the fire. We have the word of God telling us how we shall live. And we who are in Christ have the spirit to make it possible. See church, both then and now, God intends for for our reverence for him to lead to our obedience to him. So there's never an excuse for a Christian to be anti-law. Never an excuse for sinners to come Um, and continue in unrepentant sin. Our obedience is essential. Now, it's not essential to earning our salvation, but to giving evidence of our salvation. But that doesn't mean that we will obey perfectly, will we? Each and every one of us will fail to obey. We have and we will. But, but... When we do, when we fail, and when we fail miserably, we too can be comforted by these words. The words that comforted the Israelites in their their fear. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. As the law holds no terror for those who are trusting in Christ as our only hope in life and in death. Romans one eight is crystal clear. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning the law frightens us no more. Because we have a mediator who is also our great high priest. Now this doesn't mean we, we still don't have much to learn from the law. Because we do. As the Puritan Thomas Watson explained. Though a Christian is not under the condemning power of the law. Yet he is under its commanding power. As Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, it's Jesus Serving as our mediator who shows us how to live in obedience to the law. And by sending his spirit, he makes it possible. He makes our obedience possible. Meaning Christians keep the Ten Commandments. We we keep the law, not because we have to, but because we want to. We want to to obey not as a means of justifying ourselves before God, but in loving response to the one who justified us. Our obedience is the visible sign that we are truly in Christ. As Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So church, if you fear God, no, there is no need to be frightened anymore. The thunder has been replaced with a cry. But if you don't fear God, understand you have every reason to be frightened, for you cannot approach God and live. Let's pray. Oh Lord, holy and righteous God, and eternal God, maker of heaven and earth, you and you alone are worthy of all honor and respect and worship. You are to be feared. Grow us in our understanding of who you are. Convict us of our sin and let us be a people who strive to live holy and upright lives in obedience to your word and the power of the Spirit that you have given us. And when we fail, Lord, let us continue to find and turn to the grace that is found at the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.